Welcome to The Yoga Room. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Munoz, a yoga therapist and researcher studying and applying the tools of yoga to help transform the lives of people living with arthritis and related conditions. In this podcast, we'll explore the application of yoga to daily life, what the research shows, what real people have experienced, and how to ensure that yoga in its many forms is safe, accessible, practical, and relevant. You'll hear from people living with arthritis, yoga experts, healthcare professionals, and scientists who work in this space. Whether you're a yoga professional, a person living with a chronic condition, or someone who cares for those who do, we hope you'll walk away from each episode with a useful nugget of information or insight. Perhaps even think of this episode as a little bit of self-care. Whether you're listening in the car, the shower, on a walk, or in bed during a flare, we hope our sharing nourishes you in some way. As we begin, take a long, deep breath and consider setting an intention to have an open mind, to be fully present, to discover something new, to trust that you're hearing exactly what will serve you today and beyond. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Yoga Room. I am, I'm always excited for our guests. I feel like I introduce the podcast every single time that way, but this guest is very special. You know, some of the guests that I've had on in the past I have known for years, and we have long working relationships collaboratively, um, sometimes through Yoga for Arthritis. This guest has known me longer than any because he has known me literally since I was born, or maybe even before that. The guest today is my father, and I'm not having him on just because I like to chat with my dad, which I do. Uh, because of the relevance of his clinical background to some of the work that we do. And we're going to have a conversation today about the relationship between substance use and addiction and chronic pain. So I will read his bio as I do all of our guests, and then we'll get a chance to, to dig in. My guest today is Edward Haas, known as Eddie. Eddie is founder of Corporate Solutions International, LLC, a Bucks County, Pennsylvania consulting firm that specializes in assisting organizations with various human resource-related needs, focusing on health and behavior in the workspace. These activities include guiding corporate and wellness, health and wellness initiatives, team building, executive coaching, and assisting in the management of challenging employees. Clients include Fortune 100 and 500 companies, as well as small to mid-sized organizations. For 15 years, Eddie was president and COO of Corporate Health Solutions, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in guiding organizations in, a in the pursuit of a culture of wellness. CHS embedded medical and behavioral teams in the C-suite, and provided on-site annual health assessments with biometric screenings, coaching, and physician executive services. Prior to that, Eddie held various positions in the mental health and consulting fields, which have included drug and alcohol research and training, inpatient and outpatient psychiatric and substance use abuse services, a private practice, and 33 years as the head of mental health consultants, a behavioral health and employee assistance company. 
An international speaker, Eddie is a board-certified medical psychotherapist and frequently presents information on holistic approaches to wellness. He's been a trainer for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Center for Substance Abuse Prevention for over 15 years, and the Pennsylvania State Department of Health for 20 plus years. In addition, Mr. Haas has served as a board member for the Employee Assistance Society of North America for 12 years and is a past president. He served as a senior fellow at the Jefferson School of Population Health at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, PA, and now sits on the executive board of directors at the Living Grim Foundation, a drug and alcohol treatment facility headquartered in Bethlehem, PA. Well, that is a mouthful, and I aspire to be as long-lived and productive to warrant such an extensive bio. So Mr. Eddie Haas, who from now on I will refer to as dad, welcome to the yoga room. A pleasure, I'm exhausted already. <laughs> so you've done a lot of things, a lot of work in corporate environments and in wellness and in health behavior. That also would be a fascinating conversation to have because more and more you see yoga and mind-body practices coming into corporate environments and being part of wellness programs for employees. We are not having that conversation today. <laughs> We're going to dig into your expertise related to drug and alcohol addiction and how that's related to chronic pain and the work that we do in supporting people who are living with chronic pain. So can you take me, no offense, but way back to your early years in your psychotherapy training and share with us how you landed in drug and alcohol addiction as an early specialty and what those years were like. I'd love to. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. You are one of my favorite people as well. And I'm delighted to be here having this conversation. We'll see if I make you proud. Uh, the, the journey began in graduate school, unbeknownst to me, when a college professor during a training said, if you ever burn out doing any counseling related activities, go work with alcoholics because they get well and it's really rewarding. And I thought it was an odd thing for him to say and didn't really understand it until about three years, two, two and a half years after graduate school, I found myself burning out in a very short time because I was working with stranded indigents in the inner city and they weren't getting well. And uh, because we weren't doing anything to help them get well, uh, it was a frustrating experience. And at the same time, I moved into a new house, which was in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, near Livingren, not Bethlehem. And it was a mile away from Livingren Foundation, which I am now a board member of. Uh, I decided, I remembered what the professor had said, and I knew that I needed to change jobs. And now I lived a mile away from an alcohol rehab. So I called them on the phone. And I asked them if they had any openings for a, a professional counselor. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, odd as it may seem, that morning they had decided they wanted to hire somebody with a degree, which they had never done before, a non-recovering person with a degree. And they asked me to come right over for an interview. 
So that's how I fell into the addiction field. Uh, it was quite by chance uh, and true to the word of the professor, it was energizing because in short order, I found that people got well. What was happening uh, in that building was magical. And it was in retrospect magical because of relationships that were form formed and trust that was given to uh, the professionals by the patients. So you said, I just wanna unpack a little bit of jargon in there. You said they wanted to hire a professional, a non-recovering professional. So for those who are not familiar with the world of addiction and recovery, that means that you are trained as a, a professional in mental health to work with people who are going through a recovery journey, but you yourself have not walked that journey. And that at the time was less typical than it is now, yeah? It was. It was uh, exceptional, to tell you the truth. The, the world of addiction treatment was populated by people who had received treatment themselves. Some were degreed, uh, but a minority of them were degreed. Mostly it was people with two years of recovery who have been working the AA program and uh, got it and were able to sustain their sobriety. So they were asked to help others. So it really grew, the whole treatment model grew out of the 12-step model of Alcoholics Anonymous. And therefore, the people that were recruited to be the early pioneers of treatment were recovering themselves. When you worked with people who were in recovery, did they tend to be in a 12-step program and the psychotherapy was supportive of that? Or did they have a multitude of different paths? That's a great question. Uh, the, the standard was that they were working the program. That was really the credential that was required, that people understood what the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous consisted of, that they were adept at it, uh, and they were receiving only minimal training, formal training back in the beginning when I first came in. I have to tell you, I learned so much from them, uh, so much more from them than I did reading books or taking classes. Uh, the real world experience, as I quickly found out, was much more valuable than the academic experience. I, I can't minimize the skills that I uh, received in my training because the communication skills, the listening skills, the counseling skills all came in very handy. But until I learned uh, what the world of an addict was, I had no idea. And uh, it was just a stab in the dark. And by the way, because I wasn't recovering, the, the mandate for me in order to be considered for the position was that I had to go through the 21 days of treatment as a patient. Oh. Wow. In order to find out what it was all about. And I had to attend AA for 90 meetings in 90 days, which was the standard back then and really is continues to be a standard of recovery right now. And, and I attribute 
my early understanding of addiction and recovery to growing up with you. And I have memories of going to meetings with you um, that I, I remember quite well. Um, I think that they were an important experience for me to have some understanding of even just the language of the recovery movement, which is particular, and even which has changed over time since back in those early days with person-first language, for example. So the 12-step model, though, is not the only model of addiction recovery. So not that you need to give us an encyclopedia, but what are some alternative strategies that people use? Well, there, there really are a, a wide array of approaches to treating the addict. In fact, the real professional uses a, what we call a multimodal approach. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that concept of using more than one uh, approach to treat the whole person. Right. So it's become very mainstream to treat the person uh, using motivational interviewing. So, which I know that your listeners are also familiar with. Uh, motivational interviewing came out of the addiction treatment world. Uh, and that was the first shift from the 12-step model to multimodal therapy, uh, was understanding that not everybody was going to immediately embrace the 12-step programs, and some would never embrace the 12-step program, and the it was futile to try to get them to do that, which, quite frankly, we tried to do in the very beginning uh, of the treatment experience. Me, not quite as much as others, but uh, it was very common that if you would not go to meetings, if you weren't going to embrace the 12-step program, you wouldn't be accepted into treatment. Mm -hmm. So so it's also part of the 12-step model is one of complete abstinence. And I think we understand a little bit more from modern science that that is not the only possible strategy for some people. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, what we've learned in the years since the 80s when I or actually the late 70s when I first started in the field, just to date myself and put it in perspective, <laughs> is that we understood that, it that addiction was a disease from the get-go. What we didn't understand as fully as we do now is that it is a brain disease. And the fact that it has to do with our neurological wiring and malfunctioning, the treatment approach has changed dramatically. Understanding uh, the role of serotonin, the role of dopamine, the role of cortisol, and the uh, resulting effect of behavior was all unwrapped and then put into a different kind of approach, which included meeting the people where they were, not insisting that from day one, total abstinence was a achieved, but set as a goal. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So total abstinence is not the only path, but it still is set out as an ultimate goal. Yeah. Ideally, uh, for most addictions, uh, the, the goal is 
total abstinence. Now, for the drug of choice, there's okay. still a lot of debate about mm -hmm. whether that's the wise approach or not. There's, mm -hmm. there's lots of room for disagreement in this scientific approach. Yeah. Because we don't, we still don't understand the brain chemistry as much as we're going to in five or 10 years. So there are those who still insist that total abstinence should and will be the only goal that will really address the addicted brain. Uh, but there, there are exceptions to that. So, so when you say the drug of choice, can you explain a little bit how that works? So when someone has an addiction, they have an addiction to a particular substance that can possibly be managed by using a different substance, right? Yes. Yes. And some are as addictive <laughs> right. or addictive in a different way. And some are less addictive or benign in that sense. But yes, there are many approaches to treating uh, addiction uh, with medication over the years. So replacing uh, morphine, for example, morphine was treated with heroin. Mm, oh, wow. Heroin was treated with methadone. Right. Right. So they're, they're, the history is replacing the drug of choice with a different drug, which might be treated by that individual's brain in a different way and mm. thus free them up from the pattern of behavior. That's always been the target is Break that pattern of behavior that's driven by the neurological imbalance. Right. And I so, think that that's where you, your listeners come in, is helping to break that pattern of behavior. Because there's the physiological addiction to the substance, and then there is also the behavioral pattern, and those get interwoven because the behavior is associated with the physiological reward. Exactly. Yeah. So what are some of the risk factors for addiction? Because there are plenty of people who drink alcohol and don't ever develop a dependence problem. And there are also some people who use other, there are people who have a prescription opioid and they use it after recovering from a surgery and then they're done. And there are other people who use it for a very brief time and then end up having a lifelong challenge. So can you talk about some of the risk factors for that? I can. Uh, now, I might get these figures a little bit wrong, but uh, as, if memory serves, and it, at this age, it doesn't very well. Uh, but as I remember it, 65% of uh, risk factor is genetic. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the, the cast, is, the, the die is cast early on in terms of potential risk. And that goes all the way back to grandparents. So okay. the likelihood that your grand uh, that you will be addicted if your grandparent or parent was addicted is is very great. Then there's environmental, which is social, which is being exposed into the environment. So if, if you are at risk and you are in an environment where drinking or using drugs is frowned upon, that fuse might never burn out uh, or never ignite. Uh, but if you are at risk and in an environment 
where it's commonplace to use or abuse, go, it's only a matter of time then that you will succumb and become active in your addiction. So the old concept was it was like a fuse that was burning and everybody's fuse is a different length Mm. based on their genetics and their environment uh, and their emotional and mental state. And the, the more risk factor there is, the shorter the fuse is and therefore uh, exposure to the drug could trigger somebody sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. My mentor, okay. uh, my first mentor, recovering alcoholic, was an active alcoholic from his first drink. He was sharing a bottle of wine on the street corner at 15 years old, got drunk, never stopped. Oh, wow. His fuse was probably an eighth of an inch. And then there are people that drink for years and years and years and uh, don't become an active addict for a while, but then they do. So there's that neurological triggering. And you, you said that your mentor suggested working with alcoholics specifically because they get better. There are lots of other things that people get addicted to. Do they also get better? Yes, they do. The challenge with the other drugs is that they are more insidious. Uh, There is the legal aspect, the potency aspect. Uh, Alcohol pales in comparison to other drugs, which are much more difficult to get off of, including nicotine, Hmm. uh, which is a a drug that uh, just fits the circuitry of the brain in a certain way that uh, other drugs don't. So arguably nicotine is is the hardest one. It doesn't get yeah. a lot of press about that, but it's probably one of the harder drugs to, uh, not probably, it's one of the harder drugs to overcome. But we're talking more about the psychoactive drugs like uh, heroin and cocaine and opioids and alcohol and marijuana. Those all have varying degrees of uh, difficulty for the recovering process, recovery process. Um, and so those are all addictive substances. And then there are also behaviors that people get addicted to, like gambling or shopping or eating that are coping strategies too, and also maybe that implicate the brain circuitry to an extent. What's the difference in process? Well, it, I, I don't think there is a difference. In mm. uh, we're talking about dopamine here. Okay. The reward system of the brain. So we all need dopamine to exist as much as we need food and water. Mm. We need dopamine because dopamine is the element that gets us out of bed in the morning. Without dopamine in our brain to a certain level, and I think it's... Well, I won't even go with that. What the, <laughs> the amount is 40 something per milliliter, uh, nanograms or something like that. Uh, it's a, it's, there's a certain amount of dopamine that is required to get us even to get out of bed. And then there's a certain amount of dopamine that will keep us out of depression. Uh, and when we go through a normal day of rewards, we're getting bursts of dopamine all day long. When we 
do something successfully, when we find food, when we drink a cup of coffee, when we say hello to somebody, we're getting little bursts of dopamine that keep our levels somewhere between 40 and 100. Mm-hmm. You introduce a drug and the dopamine spikes to a thousand. So you're hitting your pleasure center at such levels that the, the pleasure centers of the brain are out of control and we want more and more and more. So I'm not sure how I got yeah. off No, that's really relevant because, you know, if you're getting those giant hits of dopamine, then why mess around with activities that are going to give you a tiny reward that pales in comparison? Well, therein Um, lies the rub because the, the things that are giving you the tiny amounts no longer give you any pleasure. Mm. Yeah. So, I want to come back to this because I think it's really important when we're thinking about mind-body practices as a coping strategy. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a little detour over to trauma because I suspect trauma history is a risk factor for addiction and trauma history is also common for people who are living with systemic autoimmune conditions. And trauma history also is implicated in chronic pain cycles. So that seems like a hot mess. What can you tell us about the role of trauma in addiction? I think that you could probably tell me more than <laughs> I can tell you, but I'll, I'll take a, a feeble stab at it. Again, you're, it's, it's got to be neurologically based, right? Let's have a conversation between us because you're more of an expert on this piece than I am. But the the trauma depletes uh, the chemistry of the brain. It, it, it throws everything off balance. So the state of homeostasis is out the window. Mm. And because of the trauma and the imbalance of the imbalance neurologically, the pleasure centers are not being satisfied. So there, there's a hunt, I imagine, and now this is where I'll turn it back to you. The hunt for pleasure uh, or happiness even is stilted by the imbalance neurologically, correct? Yeah. Well, and I, I'm thinking about diamonia and eudaimonia. And you know, when you're talking about pleasure and happiness, right? The difference between these things that give us like a chemical hit and the things that bring us long lasting satisfaction or fulfillment and that those get conflated or, I mean, I think societally we have a a large problem with that, with looking for those quick hits of chemical, I'm using air quotes for those who are listening, happiness, you know, doesn't come in the form of like a short burst of dopamine, not eudaimonia, not true, fulfilling, long-lasting joy. Ideally, the type that is present regardless of external circumstance, that isn't reliant on external environment or even chemical inputs, right? And that's, I think, where mind-body practices come in, is that if we're able to if we're able to help people distinguish between those, the the short-term 
unfulfilling, you know, chemical hit of pleasure. I mean, it's fulfilling in the moment, but it's not deeply residing within beneath the layer of the physical body. So you you said it elegantly uh, and you're spot on as uh, as far as I understand it, that pleasure is is felt, is tactile. Pleasure is a feeling that the body gets. Happiness is from the neck up, if you will. It's <laughs> or, more experiential. It's right. more intellectual. And that's where your listeners come in because we're seeking happiness, not pleasure. The pleasure mm -hmm. is elusive. Uh, and not as rewarding. Uh, and now we're talking about serotonin. Hmm, right? Okay. Dopamine, right? So serotonin is what gives us the happiness. The difference between, as I understand it, again, I'm not, not a neurologist, and nor do I even pretend to be, although I may be able to play one on a television. <laughs> dopamine is characterized as this this feels really good. I, I want more. Mm -hmm. Serotonin is, this feels good, but I don't need it all the time. Mm. Not enough. Mm. And that's what happiness is. When we can be comfortable with enough mm -hmm. rather than I need more. And that's the difference between an addict and a use and a, a substance user. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who uses recreationally or someone who uses sporadically, they're using it to just get a little bit of a, a short-term pleasure and not wearing out the pathway, the neural pathways. As I understand that the yogic practices that are involved in your work uh, and the work of your listeners are more about increasing serotonin uh, and getting people to feel intellectually pleasure or happiness, right? So that they, they don't rely on that dopamine hit, which is being dysregulated by the treatment for, of their chronic disease. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so now you get to the chronic disease, which I think is where all of this comes together is my understanding is that there are kind of there are a variety of different ways that someone can end up with a substance use disorder who has chronic pain. So a common one that lots of people think of is I have chronic pain, a doctor prescribes a an opioid, I start taking the opioid, I develop a an addictive relationship with or substance use disorder to that Let's prescription. Let me interrupt you and back okay. up a little bit because it's you st stepped over one aspect. Oh, okay. It's really important. And that is that everybody goes through the process that you're talking about, but you get you have to go through dependence to get to it. Mm, okay. So everyone who is put on an opioid mm -hmm. is going to get dependent on the opioid. Really? Not everybody is going to get addicted. To the opioid huh okay so even if like if you have back surgery and you get like a short dose you know a, a few pills to mm -hmm. you know for the recovery period you're going to develop a dependence even on just a few there's a, there's a physio physiologic dependence that 
begins the minute that you are taking a substance. Wow. Okay. Now, let's go back to that fuse. Not mm -hmm. everybody gets activated right okay. away. Some people can use for a long time and not get addicted, but their body begins to need that drug to get back to this new homeostasis. So someone could, like we have listeners living with chronic conditions who may have had multiple surgeries and may have gotten short doses of opioids after each surgery, and maybe the fuse is getting shortened each time and still not have an addiction. Am I understanding that right? Okay. But the, the piece that the listeners have to be aware of is that, and this is really complicated, the, the dependence becomes an addiction. If, if a person is using the, the medication as prescribed mm -hmm. and no, no, in no other way, so there's no drug-seeking behavior, there is no preoccupation, uh, the dopamine that indicates that the dopamine levels are being maintained mm -hmm. uh, and the the neurochemistry of the brain is still being somewhat balanced maintaining balance it's when it becomes when drug seeking behavior when the person takes an extra pill mm -hmm. here and takes an extra pill there and begins to introduce more uh, of that dopamine to their brain, the mm -hmm. brain is going to want more and more and more of it. And one of the definitions or aspects of addiction is that they need more to get less. Oh, like right. Building up a tolerance. Right. So those people who are taking drugs uh, habitually, mm -hmm. whether they're prescribed or not, are building up a tolerance. And they really have to have someone masterful helping them navigate those tricky waters, or it could become an addiction. So when when you're talking about drug-seeking behaviors, there are also early signs of that before even taking extra doses of like count, you know, when do I get to take my next pill? Or my, and and that's not just a pill necessarily be, that could be a behavior too right that you could be anticipating sort of ruminating about the thing and that suggests an unhealthy relationship to the thing whether it be a substance or a behavior right right there's going to be a certain amount of that because when the drug begins to wear off the pain begins right right and yeah. then that's indicated by the pain when's my next dose because my pain is back versus when's my next dose because i need a dopamine hit exactly. yeah and that's complicated when both are happening right exactly and then in some situations you have the same sort of pathway but instead of developing the dependence to the prescription opioid, you end up moving from the prescription opioid to an illicit opioid and developing a dependence on that, but that's sort of a similar. And then there's another one where you can develop the substance use disorder and then have chronic pain, partly by being dysregulated in you know, a variety of chemical systems. And then while you were using it for the dependence you it also is assisting with the pain that has developed right like some people it goes the opposite direction they didn't have the pain when 
the substance you started, and then they do. So people can end up with comorbid chronic pain and substance use disorder in a variety of ways, right? And then the relationships are tricky. Absolutely. And anyone laying hands or connecting with these people need to be aware of that nuance because we all have, as practitioners, we all have a responsibility to understand what's happening to this person. It's not that they are amoral. It's not right. that they are sloppy. It's not that they, which is what we believed in the 30s, that <laughs> addicts were immoral and just couldn't control themselves. Mm. Could ever only get their act together, they'd be fine. Right. Uh, but we we need to understand that the trauma sets mm. the stage, and the dysregulation of the brain is what the action point is, and through the work uh, of healing, what you are moving the person from is that over-dependence on the dope, the mega dopamine hits and mm-hmm. moving them closer to uh, the cessation, what, what's the word? Cessation? Be, be, being sated. Oh, satisfaction. <laughs> satiation? <laughs> So, and, and I think that that's the work that your listeners do that is so remarkable is moving people towards happiness rather than pleasure. So if someone is living with a chronic pain condition and they're using, you know, a multimodal approach, so they're using a variety of different tools in their toolbox to manage the chronic pain condition, which may include prescription medication and behavioral strategies, what are some signs that they may have an unhealthy relationship with those coping strategies? Well, you mentioned the most important one, and that is, what is the interval uh, between awakening and thinking, when do I get my next dose? Mm -hmm. So that preoccupation, when when the life begins, comes about the the substance and that's the slippery slope and the more a person progresses into uh, the disease of addiction the more you can see uh, that there is something awry okay so there was something I'll I'll go back to the 70s again okay relevant here there's something that was developed by uh, a recovering uh, psychologist by the name of Jelinek called the Jelinek Curve. Uh, And it was a curve, literally a curve on a piece of paper that showed the progression of the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it started out with, with constant relief seeking. Okay, so the tolerance for not having relief became shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, And then the tolerance uh, changed so that more substance is necessary to satisfy the needs of the brain. But then it became social. So I remember drinking with inferiors was one of the things low down on on the curve, so which is kind of funny, but 
kind of not. I mean, if you think about it, that what happens is through the drug seeking behavior and the drug becoming center stage of a person's life, eventually they're going to begin associating with people of like mind. So they begin dragging each other down. That becomes the social structure. It becomes about the use, about the, the drug itself, not about recovery, not about healthiness, not, the, not health, not about I'm taking yoga classes, but I need that drug uh, to get through my day. So it, it envelops the entire person. Now, I think that through the opioid epidemic, this has largely been dispelled societally, but I just want to reiterate addiction cuts across absolutely every segment of society. It doesn't care how much money you make, how much education you have, what neighborhood you live in. Um, and there are people who are able to sustain an outward appearance of social well-being in the context of their addiction. Yeah. They call that or eventually it drags addiction. everybody down. <laughs> well, eventually, yes. But okay. there are, uh, it might be on your death. Mm. Uh, yeah, there are people that uh, are functioning right. uh, despite. Now, that doesn't mean that their brain chemistry is healthy. That doesn't right. mean that they have happiness. Uh, that doesn't even mean that they are able to have pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that is all stilted because of what's happening in the brain chemistry. The, the human brain doesn't know race, color, or creed. Right. The human brain doesn't know economic status. We all have the same brains. We're, we all are endowed by that. They, they, there's nuances, there's differences in everybody's brain, right. but basically the chemical structure of the brain is identical. And that's, that's what we know is addiction right these days. We didn't know it mm -hmm. back then. We do know it now. And I, so I want to bring up something that I'm not sure if we have talked about this before. Um, I'm going to talk about the Rat Park experiments. Is that familiar to you? When I say well, that, does that ring a bell? Uh, there are so many rat. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm going to lay it out as I understand it. And then I would like you to comment because I think it has implications for the work that we do. In the, the experiments that, that I'm referring to that I've read about, they have, you know, there's the classic animal model of addiction where a rat is alone in a cage and they have a bottle of water and they have a bottle of addictive drug. And they will, as many of us have heard, they will overdose on the drug. They will forego the food and drink and continuously seek the drug to the point that they overdose on that drug. However, there is an experiment that was done that created what was referred to as Rat Park, which is an incredibly stimulating social environment for the rats where they had companionship and they had exercise and they had brain stimulating activities and they also had the food and the water and the drug and in that scenario of rat park they will use the drug on occasion and not overdose themselves they will also eat nourishing food and drink enough to hydrate and so can you talk about maybe yep. i'm oversimplifying the scenario well, it's a bit oversimplified but 
I, I would, I, I like what you just described. And the accept is mm -hmm. those animals, rats, that were lower on the pecking order, that were shunned socially, those were the ones that that uh, gravitated towards the drug. Oh, those wow. Were okay. That were hitting the bar consistently. So uh, I don't know if it was rats or, or monkeys that they found that out with, but similar to the rat park. Uh, might have been the monkey part and those who weren't the monkeys that weren't groomed by other monkeys the monkeys that were seen as feeble uh, and isolated those are the ones that more tended to go to that drug-seeking behavior but yeah it's quite a phenomenon uh, that uh, given social connection and that sense of well-being and belonging and fraternity sorority uh, the, the it ameliorates some of the tendencies here. I think you're on to something really important. I think that that's, that goes with treating the whole person, that you need to not, and that's one of the magic pieces of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program is that it gave affiliation to people. That it was not, it was kind of overlooked because it was the all about the 12 steps and not drinking and don't pick up, don't use today. But what was happening dynamically through affiliation of a program and belonging to a club was probably more beneficial than even the 12 steps. Maybe I'm overstating that. Right. Well, I, and I think that's so, so of course, yoga translates to union or connectedness. And we can think about that as a, an interconnectedness between mind and body. We can think about that as interconnectedness in community. So having a sangha or yoga community that can be supportive. And we've definitely seen that in the arthritis and chronic pain classes. But then it's also connectedness of all things, connectedness of the individual with all life, with the cosmos, with divinity, whatever that means to you. So I think that there's something about feeling a sense of connection in all of the ways that that can show up that is therapeutic. It's therapeutic for pain management. And I imagine that it's also therapeutic for addiction management. Yeah, it's antithetical to addiction, if I'm using the right word. Mm. But, uh, the, the disconnection is what happens as a result of the addiction because there's shame, there's, mm. there's subterfuge, there's people are just hiding and disconnected. And that's one of the beauties of what you do is that yoga connects people with the universe. It connects people with the earth. It connects people with other people. So that sense of belonging and I'm not alone uh, is tremendously uh, soothing and uh, a, a way out of addiction. And, and so maybe an essential ingredient um, for those listeners who are yoga teachers and yoga therapists is aside from all of the self-regulation strategies is the healing presence, the therapeutic presence that the, you know, the active listening that creates a, a sense of connection of being unconditional, you know, unconditional positive regard. 
by the provider um, can serve as part of the treatment in and of itself. That's where the parallel of yogic practices and counseling psychology cross and uh, in an elegant way, because the language that you just used comes from Carl Rogers, the father okay. of counseling psychology, uh, and uh, on that unconditional positive regard, that being present, that reflection, mm -hmm. uh, that that hope that is given, uh, the, the personal connection that happens in yoga, happens in a counseling environment right. as well. And there's magic in that. Yeah. And there's also, so to get to the actual practices themselves, being able to sit with the discomfort, I think is really central to how yoga helps us to live better. I mean, there are all the things that the practices do, like, you know, increased mobility and strength and, you know, respiration and all of those things are wonderful. And being able to notice how you're feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, and to just be with that without feeling like it has to be different than it is. I mean, that's advanced yoga. And it's actually something we were talking about in Yoga for Arthritis Book Club this week is uh, regarding things as neutral on their own merit. So it's our narrative about the thing or our relationship to the thing or how we're triggered by the thing that makes it positive or negative. The thing in and of itself, like there's nothing positive or negative about broccoli by itself. It's our relationship the, to broccoli that makes it good or bad. When we observe the feeling, the signal that goes from the brain to the knee, or we notice the antsiness or the, um, the wanting, can we just be with that feeling and can it be okay? Knowing that everything is impermanent and whatever that feeling is, it's temporary just as everything's temporary, we're temporary. So the, the key the key concept there uh, is from a, a psychologist called named Fritz Perls, a psychologist of the 70s that some people have, may have heard of. And he had a saying, come to your senses. Mm. And uh, that's at the foundation of what you're talking about here, that the narrative that's developed in absence of coming to your senses is automatic and can be very destructive. But by helping people come to their senses, by being aware, just being in the moment, can give them the opportunity, and I want to emphasize, can give them the opportunity, because they might not want to, to change the narrative. Mm -hmm. But until they come to the moment, until they come to their senses and realize what's going on at the present time, it's impossible to change that narrative. And the narrative is everything. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when, we, when we're talking about the, the yogic framework, that's the, the Panchamaya Kosha model, which suggests that there are lots of different aspects to our, I know you read at least the early chapters of my book. 
So there's the bi there's the biopsychosocial spiritual model that in the Western world says there are different pieces of us and those pieces are all connected and they all affect each other. And in the yoga world, that's the Panchamaya Kosha model that suggests that we have layers to us that are all connected, but it goes from gross to subtle. So there's like the physical body that's on the grossest level energetically, right? In yoga, we think about energy and vibration and you get more and more subtle and yoga teaches us yoga practice, whatever the practice is, whether it's a breathing practice or a meditation practice or a movement practice, all of it is teaching us to pay attention to what's happening in the moment. So in the physical practice, we're paying attention to, you know, the stretch in the hamstrings or, you know, balancing on the standing leg, or we may be paying attention to breath regulation and how it affects our nervous system, or we may be att paying attention to the mind and all of its thoughts, but all of it is requiring us to pay attention in the present moment and not be caught up in the narrative, the story that we are weaving. There's like the actual material reality of what we're experiencing on all of those levels of being. And then there is everything we're telling ourselves about that experience, everything that's ever happened in the past, everything that may ever happen in the future, which may be hopeful and positive, but oftentimes is negative and destructive. <laughs> so in order to shed the narrative or in order to rewrite the narrative, we have to, have to be aware. Yeah, right. Right. We have to be aware that there even is a narrative, which I think most of us are walking around with narratives we're not even aware of. And we take those to be objective reality. What's so special about yoga is it forces us to be in the moment. You can't do yoga and not be in the moment. Well, You'll I fall. guess you can. <laughs> I guess you can. You'll fall. Exactly. So it's, so, it's a great adjunct uh, going back to addiction. It's yeah. a great adjunct uh, allied therapy for addiction treatment. Yes, right. Now you have, so I've talked with you about a couple of um, research projects I've been involved with related to addiction. One of them is the clinical trial that we're doing in methadone clinics in the Bronx, where we're introducing yoga for methadone users who are living with chronic low back pain thinking that the tools of yoga will both help to support chronic pain management, which may be at the heart of the opioid use in the first place, and also to support ongoing substance use disorder management. That's, that's the theory anyway, that it would operate on both of those levels. Um, and I, I just wanna share that I have met the most remarkable people in that work, both the the clinicians who are drawn to doing that work, but also especially the advocates in the community with lived experience who are thriving. Um, and so when we talk about medication management as one possible strategy, medication management can be life-saving, life-changing, and it's not an either or. It's not like, oh, well, you use methadone or you go to 12 steps, or you, you know, develop a meditation practice. Multimodal means you could use all of those things as a formula for successful management. 
and that's a change in the field of addiction treatment because in the back in the day you couldn't go to AA if you were on methadone. Mm. Uh, you had to be real quiet about it. You couldn't mm. reveal that. Uh, so what we've found is medicated uh, medication assisted treatment has really changed the landscape because it gets rid of the craving right and frees the energy up for creation mm. right so it turns craving into creation and that's where people get out of the depths of the addiction and uh learn to live with the addiction with right. some 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 uh assistance uh, and then some people will take it as far as getting off of the methadone because they right. learn those skills and then are capable of getting off of the drug that they are still addicted. Right. Have the same ramifications, but uh, they're then motivated to move forward even with that. And that's beautiful. So I, and I also coming to, to the end of our time together, I wanted to bring up Espert because you know that I'm involved with a project to bring Espert to integrative health providers and you have a history with Espert that goes way back. Um, and I think it could ultimately be useful in the field of yoga therapy. So I, my audience doesn't know what I mean when I say Espert. So can you say a little bit about Espert and how it can be useful in healthcare? Yes, uh, Espert is an acronym for what? Screening Brief Intervention. Uh, it's been so long, I don't even remember what the acronym is, but we took this screening tool into communities back in the early 90s, I guess it was, when it was first being formulated. And we were uh, using it to teach practitioners and community leaders and doctors and especially how to screen for addiction and how to do a brief intervention that would help motivate people to seek treatment for substance abuse. Uh, back in the day, it was ignored by communities, by practitioners, by lawyers, by people who were trying to help people, by yoga practitioners. Uh, people did not touch addiction with a 10-foot pole, but through the creation of Espert, uh, screening for substance abuse became mainstream. It is a extremely a valuable tool. I think everybody that is interacting with anybody in any uh, professional way should be familiar with Espert. And I agree with you. I think that certainly that your listeners would be well advised to, to get this free tool and training. And, and it's, um, it's rooted in motivational interviewing, right? Which is one of the therapeutic tools that we teach to yoga therapists who use in their sessions. So it, it fits hand in glove with motivational yeah. interviewing. When we when the expert was developed, it was all incorporated together. We taught motivational interviewing and an uh, application of the expert simultaneously. So when someone comes to their first, yoga class or their first yoga therapy session. Oftentimes they complete a written intake and there may be questions about that intake, on that intake about 
any diagnoses that they have, what medications they use, it's unlikely that someone who is managing a challenging relationship with an addictive substance is going to disclose on a written intake form, but it may come up when rapport is established, when there's more trust. And if it does, we want to be able to meet the moment. We want to be prepared with how to handle it in a way that is respectful, a way that is um, honoring the individual and where they are in their journey, and also supporting them in being as well as possible in a responsible way. I don't know if that all made sense, but I would I would say that most yoga teachers and yoga therapists probably would not know what to do if they if it occurred to them that someone might have a troubling relationship with an addictive substance and and expert is a great start it's a great way to get uh, your feet into those waters so our listeners include yoga teachers yoga therapists people who are living with arthritis who are practicing yoga to help manage it or who want to and then healthcare providers who may recommend or refer for yoga. So given that wide spectrum of um, people we may have listening, is there anything else you want to share about this topic that you think might be useful? I think if anybody takes anything out of this conversation, uh, it's hopefully hope Hmm. Uh, that addiction is not a death sentence and that through community involvement, through uh, affiliation through support and caring and nurturing, people can be lifted from the burden and to understand it uh, in a stigma-less uh, fashion is really important. Mental health and substance abuse uh, or substance use disorder are highly stigmatized, yeah. less so than they were but still highly stigmatized. It's very difficult for people to talk about it. So having conversations like this are so important. And I hope that that's what your listeners can take from this conversation. And this probably will get cut, but I have to say it. (laughs) Uh, I am such a proud father for the work that you do and the breadth of your knowledge and what you bring to your audience. Uh, it's truly a gift. So in the show notes, we will definitely link to the research projects that I mentioned, to Espert, um, to some guidance on destigmatizing language. And are there other resources or places that people should go for more information on this topic? Well, SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration uh, from the government has amazing resources for practitioners and for lay people. Uh, so that would be the, uh, the next place that I would dig into uh, resource finding. Uh, right. There's a clearinghouse in there, embedded in there, that will give more information than we could go into in a week uh, at your fingertips. So I would suggest that uh, above above all. Uh, and if there, if you want to put a link for yeah. for me there, I'm happy to field questions and give some consultation. That's very generous. Thank you. I want to thank you um, for raising me. 
<laughs> and more like dragging you up. I also, I also, I want to thank you for this body of work. Um, you know, we've talked about your work in addiction, and you also have a whole body of work in um, in corporate wellness and workplace wellness that maybe we'll talk about another time. And um, and you're still at it. You're still going strong um, after all these years. And that is an inspiration. So thank you so much for all of that and for joining me in the yoga room. A real pleasure. I really had a great time. Thank you so much for joining us in the yoga room. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking, following, and leaving a review. You can find more information and resources on our website at arthritis.yoga and on our social media channels. Join our newsletter to learn about our latest offerings and please share with anyone who might benefit. Until our next episode, we wish you peace and well-being. May your light shine so bright that all the world is better for your being in it.